Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. A playlist original. Just watch me. The medium is the message. The proof is approved. What kind of proof? It's approved. It has no core identity. Smashed potatoes are no gravy. You know what I'm saying? Speaking uh, moistly on them. Hello and welcome to Just Watch Me. I'm Kate. And I'm Liv. And Liv, today is a very good day because we get to talk to one of our favorite people who hosts several of my favorite Canadian history podcasts, Mr. Canadian History X himself, Craig Baird. (laughs) Welcome, Craig. Hello. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. It's great to see you. It's always great to talk to you. Um, We wanted to do a little election episode and we thought who better to talk to than you because in your podcast, uh, John to Justin, you're doing a series, an election series. Can you tell listeners about that series? Give them the give them the pitch. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, well, kind of from John to Justin is my political history, I guess, uh, podcast. And um, I was covering all the opposition leaders who never became prime minister. And then the election hit. And I thought, well, what's kind of a cool thing that I could maybe do with the election? And I thought, well, 36 days for election. We've had 43 elections. I think this is our 44th. So why don't I look at the history of every single election from 1867 all the way up to 2019? And uh, I would do it every single day. So uh, some days it's multiple elections, uh, like 1963, 1962, or 79, 80. Uh, And then sometimes it's just one election. usually the bigger ones. And so I've been doing that every single day now. I think I'm on day 27, 28 now. Uh, it'll be done in a week. I know that because I'm very aware of when this will be done because it's, it's, a, it's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And it must be also hard to find information, especially from some of the less insig- or less significant or less memorable um, elections, I should say. It, it really is, um, especially when you're getting back to like the 1890s where, you know, I usually have my usual sources, which is like, uh, you know, Wikipedia is a good one for kind of laying out your outline of everything before you start getting into the more detailed stuff. Um, but the 1890s, there's, you know, I, I don't have a lot. I, I didn't have, for example, through the better part of the first half of the 20th century, I had Mackenzie King's diaries that I could actually look at and him talking about the elections. And then from about 1917 onwards, I have McLean's Magazine's archives that I can start diving into. So what I used for, you know, before that was primarily newspapers.com because I could actually read the newspapers from those election uh, days and get a lot of inside information. And without Without that website, I don't think I would have been able to do it because there's a lot of elections, like you said, that just there's not a lot of information. And that includes for some modern ones, even up until like the 1960s uh, online, there's not a ton about them because they weren't uh, hugely important ones like 1962 or something. Uh, But when you get into stuff with like Trudeau mania and stuff, well, then you get a lot more. Anytime you have a major shift, uh, like 1958 or 1984, 1993, you get a lot of information, uh, which really helps. Yeah. And can I jump in on something too? I loved when you read (laughs) from, you know, uh, Mackenzie King's diaries because it it really just really (laughs) brought me back. And I know this is like kind of not election related, but I had to bring it up. Like, do you think that we should bring the diary back? Like, I want to hear people's people's thoughts in that way that we had them before. I found it really interesting. Oh, absolutely. Uh, because his was, it was such a, a really good insight into the elections, but also the people that he's running against, you know, his thoughts on the opposition leaders. And he wouldn't really mince words because from his perspective, he's writing in his diary. He doesn't know that some guy 70 years later on a computer is going to be reading this and then broadcasting it out to everybody. <laughs> so he, he's very, you know, he talks about how on election nights, he would uh, he would pray in front of the picture of his mother. And, you know, he's very religious and he believes it's, you know, God's will that he's 
becoming prime minister. Uh, but then you, you can also read some things where he's like, well, you know, if I don't win the election, it's okay. Um, I'll move on. And then, you know, that election is the one where he didn't move on. He decided to keep governing with a coalition. So it kind of gives us great context to everything as well. Very cool to see into the mind of the man. Like I'm still, I'm into that. And what would I give to like read Justin Trudeau's personal diary? Like I, I would, I would give <laughs> I'm a gonna lot. Be, I'm going to be honest. I don't think it's as um, maybe deep and um, reflective as what a, Mackenzie what Keith. a hit what a hit listen I went there I went yeah, there it, you went there <laughs> and it's it's nice because when you have a diary it's much more personal they're not trying to sell themselves but when you have for example biographies especially somebody like uh, John Dievenbaker who very much crafts this mystique around himself you know he says he met Wilfrid Laurier in 1910 at a street corner and lectured him about the government when he was 10 years old and then said sorry Mr. Laurier I have to get back to work and it's like Which this for sure probably didn't happen <laughs> yeah <laughs> like you didn't mention this at all until the 1950s and then he puts it into his his biography I mean there's a statue in Saskatoon they 100% believe it but <laughs> Most likely it didn't happen. I mean, it's very much that John Diefenbaker mystique that he tries to put around himself of, you know, he was meant to be prime minister. But in a diary, you wouldn't have that. You have kind of their base personal feelings because they're not writing for anybody. They're not trying to impress anybody. They're just putting their own thoughts out there. And I think that so often what we take for granted in these elections is the fact that we can vote. And that's something that you touch on in your series, um, you know, a lot, especially in the early episodes of who who the voters actually are. So can you tell us a little bit about um, the progression and the history of, of voting eligibility? Sure. Uh, well, obviously, it starts with, with white males. Uh, you know, they got the vote right away, but only ones who own property. I think they had to own like $250 or $150 worth of property, and then they could vote. And so the first election, the percentage, percentage of the population who could actually vote was like 8%, so like a minuscule part of the population. And then as time goes on, it kind of evolves. It's They make it more open for more voters. Um, they briefly toy with making it so that the Indigenous can vote, but only ones who own property. So mostly just Indigenous in Eastern Canada, not Western Indigenous. And then with the 1885 resistance, they scrap all that because they, you know, they I guess they don't want to give too much power to the Indigenous. So then not until about 1917 do we actually see a big change. And that's when uh, Sir Robert Borden's government gives the vote to women who are relatives of the men serving overseas. And it seems like, oh, well, what a wonderful thing. He's giving the vote to these women. But it's like, at the time, we were going through the conscription crisis, and he really wanted to bring in conscription. So you want people who are going to support conscription, and the people who will are the wives, mothers, sisters of the people fighting overseas, because more soldiers going overseas means their loved ones come back. So he did that to make sure that he would get their vote because at the same time, he took the vote away from uh, enemy aliens. So anybody who came to Canada after 1902, which was a huge amount of people and came from Germany and Austria, lost the vote. So the women got the vote, but then all of these people lost the vote because those people most likely would have voted liberal. So it was a really underhanded way of... Great, you did give women the vote, but you also like robbed the vote of a lot of people. And then at the same time, uh, like Chinese people couldn't vote, uh, Japanese people couldn't vote, and uh, that continued for quite a while. I don't think Japanese people could vote till like 1947, and then the indigenous in 1960 finally get the vote, and then uh, mentally handicapped in 1993 get the vote, and then I think it was only in about 2006 that prisoners could vote. So I, we live now in a time where literally everybody can vote. If you're over 18 and you're a Canadian citizen, you can vote. Um, I, I don't know if you two agree and you don't have to. I think that Borden uh, giving the vote to the relatives of men serving overseas and taking away from other people seems like a, a very dirty trick to enfranchise certain people like who you're purposely been disenfranchising for so long to get something very specific out of them. Um, and I, I think that's a I quote, dirty trick. What's your favorite <laughs> dirty trick you've come across uh, in your research? Like something really, what we would say, high-handed and malicious um, in, in, in legal pleadings. <laughs> like what kind of, what kind uh, of something that turned your stomach that you think about from this research? 
I think that's a big one. But you also see, especially in the days of like uh, Johnny McDonald, you see some underhanded tactics. You you have you don't have a secret ballot until like the 1870s. So if you, you go into this place and you say, I'm voting for this person and they, people didn't like that. Uh, one newspaper editorial said, well, if you promise your employer, you're going to vote for this person, but you have a secret ballot, then you can vote for somebody else. And nowadays it seems like, well, I would never vote. If my employer said vote for this person, I'd be like, well, I'm going to vote for who I want to vote for. But back then, it was a real worry that, you know, the manufacturers in Montreal wanted conservatives. So they tell their employees, vote conservative. Well, they know if they do or not, because they have to literally announce it in front of everybody at the polling station. Uh, But you'd have uh, people kidnapping people and driving them out to a field and dropping them off. Or not driving them, but, you know, taking them (laughs) in a a carriage up to a field, dropping them off, and then coming back so they couldn't vote. Or, like, clear intimidation. And we see it all the way into the 60s. One guy in Red Deer uh, was a liberal, and he had his car shot at three times by (laughs) some guy. Like, (laughs) never got caught, but he shot at his car, shot through his windshield three times, told him, drop out of the race. And we don't think of that as something that would happen these days, but, you know, it definitely does. And that's something that newspapers.com helps with because it gives those unique stories that you don't see in the broader history. Uh, And sometimes they're really kind of messed up like that. Or my personal favorite is 1984, John Turner, uh, when he was running against Brian Mulroney, was at a at a function at a restaurant and a waiter accidentally pilled, spilled coffee on his pants. So he got up with his wife and he went, I don't, it doesn't say why, but he went to the woman's washroom. And so he takes his pants off and he gives them to his wife and then out of the stalls come two reporters. So they walk out of the stalls and there's the Prime Minister of Canada standing in his underwear, you know, just waiting for his wife to come back after she washes his pants. And it's a story that you you would never see in Wikipedia or anything else. It was like an obscure, tiny story in the Ottawa Citizen from one day. And I loved it because it was, it just seemed like so, yeah, so endearing. Nowadays, it'd be like, why were you in the woman's washroom? You know, Justin Trudeau has his pants off in a woman's washroom. We'd lose our minds over it. But I mean, it was, a, it was an innocent thing. And I think he went in there so that his wife could take his pants and everything. And he didn't think anybody was in there, let alone two reporters. Uh but with the underhanded tactics, definitely 1917 was was the worst in, in how they did it. But you, you saw it uh, with robbing the vote from uh, Asian people, from the indigenous, uh, all the way up to the 1960s. But with that 1917 election, it was just, it tore Canada apart. And it was so orchestrated to make sure that the conservatives would win. Um, actually, the probably the most underhanded part was they would send all the ballots overseas. So there was about 400,000 soldiers. So they send the ballots overseas to the soldiers. And all it says is uh, government or opposition. So you choose government or opposition, and then you send it back. And then the government under this law is able to take the votes and apply them to specific writings. Doesn't matter if like, you know, you're born in Ottawa, you live in Ottawa, they can put that vote towards Montreal because they need more votes in Montreal. And that really helped them influence the election a lot because they could kind of orchestrate how it would turn out. When you were telling that story, it really struck me that very little has changed in the way that we're conducting ourselves. And, you know, to extend on that, that very little (laughs) has changed (laughs) like in the elections total, you know, like all the, all the problems that, you know, persisted in the early 1900s seem to be reappearing today. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm curious, like what, you know, what you think about the, the bribery and, and the, the tactics that are being undertaken and, and maybe it's that we just don't hear about them as much anymore. Are you going to be doing a podcast in 20 years time unmasking all these, these hidden things that'll make us like, did people know about the bribery at the time? Like, was that a common thing? Uh, In the 19th century and early 20th, for sure. uh, Because they were, they would bet on elections, which is seems mind boggling to me now, but they would print in the paper, like, you know, liberals uh, are four to one. The, People are betting on them and people would put down like a hundred dollars in 1905, which is a massive sum of money. Um, but you definitely did see that in the, in the, uh, the articles that I was reading that there was lots of bribery. There were people openly standing outside, you know, 
convincing people, uh, here's some money, vote for this person. And it was often right out in the open. Um, one thing I saw, and it kind of shows how our language has changed, is it was called telegraphing. And uh, it's essentially you go and you vote pretending to be somebody else. So you're telegraphing somebody else's vote elsewhere. And I thought it was such a kind of a weird, I was, when I read it, I'm like, what the hell is telegraphing? This is me. Like, I don't know what this is. Uh, I, but then when they explain it in the article, it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Uh, I don't know what we'd call it today. Probably just, well, election fraud. <laughs> frog <laughs> works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you definitely, you don't see it reported as much as you get into the later part of the 20th century. There's a lot less talking about bribery. There's still talking about intimidation or, you know, sometimes a cabinet or like, um, an office is ransacked. Uh, but you don't really see it as much. And I don't know if that's because we just don't report it as much. Uh, if it does happen and the RCMP deal with it and it doesn't go to the papers, I feel like it would be reported in the papers. Like that seems, I worked in journalism and that seems like the perfect thing to put in on the front page uh, that somebody was bribing somebody. That's a huge scandal. So I don't think it happens as much. Maybe it's just harder to get away with because there's so many rules with, you, you can't even stand outside of a polling station with a sign that says, you know, liberals or conservatives, because that's illegal. So it's just obviously very, very hard to do that. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm sure there is still people who put money under the table and they vote however they're going to vote. But a lot of people don't vote either. So you might give money to somebody and then they just take the money and they don't vote. So fascinating. So we're recording this on September 11th, 2021. We had the English speaking uh, leaders debate on Thursday. And I learned from you that the debate is a relatively new phenomenon on Canada. I believe the first debate was just in 1968. Do you have a favorite yeah. debate moment in Canadian history you can think of? Uh, definitely 1980. Well, 1984 and 1988, I'd say the probably the only two times where a debate really influenced the election. Uh, you know, I watched the debate. There was nothing that really <laughs> stood out. Um, Lots of interrupting. I think the... <laughs> Lots of interrupting. The format wasn't great. The only thing that stuck out for me was Trudeau when he told uh, O'Toole that you, you're going to tell everybody to get vaccinated and you can't even get your own caucus to 90%. And I thought, well, that's a pretty, that's a good burn. Like that, that's a sick burn. That's solid. <laughs> yeah. Um, but 1984, we were going through a transition moment. We'd had 20 years of liberals, more or less. And John Turner was in charge. He called an election way too soon. And so he goes into it, and what had happened was Pierre Trudeau had put in uh, 200 uh, uh, patronage or patronage posts, so you know ambassadors, things like that, right before he left. And then Turner promised to keep doing that, and so Mulroney grilled him about it in the election in the uh, in the debate, and said that you had a choice. And and Turner, when you watch it, is very flustered and. You know, he's a veteran of politics, so it, it would take a lot to get him flustered, but it really uh, hammered home that Mulroney was a different type of politician. I mean, I'm no fan of Mulroney at all, but for the people at the time, they probably saw him as like, probably in some ways how people see Donald Trump, you know, oh, he's this breath of fresh air. He's an outsider. He's not a career politician like Turner. And so he really grilled Turner about the, the patronage posts. Can you explain uh, what that is just that quickly? Moment, uh, it's kind of like... You know, post to say uh, things like the Senate or ambassadors or anything that a government can post somebody to that's essentially like kind of a civil service post and, you know, pays really well. It, the taxpayers pay for it. So Mulroney really grilled about that because he said, you could have canceled those. And Turner said, well, no, I couldn't. I, I had a written agreement. And it really hurt Turner in the polls. Like he sank after that. The election was done from that point. And then Mulroney goes on to win the most seats in Canadian history. And then you get to 1988, and Mulroney's a bit more, he's overconfident, thinking that he's going to do the same to Turner again. And this election's about free trade, but Turner, whether he came into his own, whether he was more confident, turned the tables on Mulroney and grilled him about free trade and, like, really got into him. And it actually caused the Liberals to suddenly shoot up in the polls. And if it had to stay like that, then the Liberals might have had like a minority government against Mulroney, but then Mulroney and his, uh, the conservatives started really getting into the attack ads, putting out millions of dollars worth of advertising on pro-free trade. Like they, it caused them to completely shift their tactics on how they were dealing with Turner. If they hadn't done that, I, I think it would have been really close. Maybe a conservative minority government, maybe a liberal minority, 
But those two debates are the only two that I can think of that really caused a massive shift. In 1968, even Trudeau said, you know, this is boring. This was a waste of time because they're just sitting there answering questions. And the debate format was like two people would talk to each other while the third person was away for 40 minutes. And then that person would come back and then these two people would talk to each other. Like it was really strange how they did it. And then in the 1990s, I, I don't think it influenced a lot. When you read the newspapers, most people say that it didn't really influence me any which way. Uh, and I, I don't think they really do now. I think we get more sound bites out of them. You know, we got Trudeau with Rebel Media afterwards. So that's not even a debate thing, but it's, it's you know, shared across social media. But those debates in the 1980s, segments of those would have been put across social media and uh, would have sank Turner even more or Mulroney uh, in 1988. So those two debates, I would say, are the two that really influenced the election and the rest, maybe some people got influenced, but I would say for the most part, no, it was just, it was something to watch, something to see a bunch of people yell at each other, but it wouldn't really change who you were voting for, like it would have in the 1980s. And I think it's interesting too, how much of our information about the election is so shaped by the media coverage of it and especially something mm -hmm. like the debates that you know I don't know what the numbers are but the average Canadian isn't tuning in and and basing their you know doing their own political analysis so many people are waiting you know yeah. to see what the what the CBC is going to say the next day about you know who was the real winner of the debate and so this I thought that this would be kind of like a relatively new phenomenon, but after listening, you know, especially to the early episodes of your podcast, it's it's really not. It, newspapers from, you know, mm -hmm. the very start of these elections have, um, you know, taken <laughs> a strong-handed approach to their election coverage, shall we say. Yeah. So uh, can you tell us a little bit yeah. more about um, the media's role in the elections? Yeah, uh, probably the biggest example of that is Late nineteen, late late eighteen hundreds, and you see play, uh, papers like the Montreal Gazette, and they're like, "Hey, here's how to vote," and they have a voting card, and they're like, "This is the voting card. This is where you put an X, and it's an X next to the person they support," <laughs> and like it's blatantly saying, "Vote for this person," which I cannot. I mean, don't get me wrong, newspapers today very much slant one way or the other you know in edmonton we have the edmonton journal and the edmonton sun and they slant completely different ways but they're owned by the same company so but back then it was just mind-boggling because they would say literally like okay this is where you put your x this is how you do it look for this name and put your x here like explaining how to vote who to vote for everything with a picture and it was, it was mind-boggling to me and you still saw that well into the you know early part of the 19th or the 20th century and then as time goes on, as I think maybe journalism ethics get a bit better, you stop seeing that. But you still see people weighing, newspapers weighing one way or the other. And uh, I think it was 1963 or 68. Uh, I think it was John, yeah, 63 or 68. But anyways, they one of the newspapers did a study and it found, or it was McLean's that did a study because they were kind of in the middle. And they found that one Toronto paper covered all of these liberal things but no conservative but then the other toronto paper covered all of these conservative things but no liberal and then they would report differently on the same event uh one would say it was louis saint laurent and john diefenbaker so it was the 50s and one would say well louis saint laurent had 500 people come out but then the other one that supported the liberals would say wow like 1500 people came out and sometimes the discrepancy was massive the biggest one was one paper said 300 people came out for an event and the other one said like 3,500. And it's like, there's no way that you can mistake 300 <laughs> or 3,000. Like there's no way like you, somebody's lying and it's most likely right in the middle. It's about probably about 1,500 people. But that was as late as the 1950s, 1960s, where they're very much swinging one way or the other and kind of influencing it by telling you, oh, well, no one's going to see this person talk. So why would you vote for this person? And then as you get into the 1980s, the 1990s, it still swings, but it's much more subtle about it. It's not blatantly saying, oh, this person's good, this person's bad. There's more laws in place for who gets what coverage. And I think that's an evolution because when television started, a lot of people were complaining that, well, you know, you're giving more coverage to this person. And CBC in an article said, well, we don't really know. Like we try and allocate it the best we can, but we have no formula to say this person gets this much and this person gets this much uh, time on the television. And that had to evolve until when I was in newspapers, 
you know, I was told you write the same amount of words for each candidate. If you write 550, you got to write 540 to 560 on this candidate. And it has to be perfectly equal. Otherwise, one candidate will say, well, you wrote way more about that person. And then it looks like you're biased to that person. So I think it's evolved a lot more. And it might be harder to get away with it now. But at the same time, we have Rebel News, which blatantly is, you know, anti-liberal, anti-Trudeau, very much conservative, very much, you know, uh, what do they call people's choice party i try not to pay attention to them so <laughs> i don't remember the exact name but uh, maxwell bernier's party so you know we have stuff like that but even then we don't really consider that like real journalism we consider that uh something and even the the leaders are like I don't, i'm not gonna answer questions from rebel news but if you look at um, regular newspapers ottawa citizen edmonton journal calgary herald they're much more subtle about it. They still do try and lean you one way or the other, but it's not as blatant as it was literally telling you how to vote, where to put your ex, what person you need to vote for, and why. My favorite stuff is, you know, when the media has, like, takes something that's a snapshot and blows it up, or at least everybody else, like, or at least the public consumes it and it blows it up. And I'm thinking of, mm. I'm thinking of the photo of Robert Stanfield's um, fumbling a football. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I yeah. think you, you played audio on your podcast of the reporter who actually took the photo, who said he caught all the other ones. I just also had <laughs> yeah. a picture of the fumble and that's what the paper published. <laughs> and, and it, it, it helped sing yeah. them, you know, and there was other things like the, somebody slapped a liberal sticker on his back. Uh, and a kick me sign. Probably would have been a pretty good, <laughs> And yeah, exactly. He would have been a good prime minister, but, you know, he's going up against Trudeau, who's young and, you know, uh, energetic, and he's seen as old, even though he's like five years older than Trudeau. It wasn't like 20 years difference here. But something like that, definitely this one thing, this one image, and he looks so horrible in it. It looks like it just hit him in the crotch or something. Like, he looks horrible in this. But like you said, he caught a bunch before that. But the newspapers don't want the one of him catching the ball. They want one of him fumbling it because it's it's funny and people will, what are we, 30, 45 years later and still talking about it. So that's what they want. But you, you're right with the like, sound bites. Um, Kim Campbell uh, in the episode that comes out, I think I'm tomorrow. looking forward no, to that one. Yeah, tomorrow. I think Katie and I both are. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's that's tomorrow. Uh, I finished writing that one. I got to record that one. Um, but with her, it was at the near the start of the election, and she said, "You know, I, I don't know the exact quote, but it was context." There is critical because she said, "Election is no time for to to, to hash out such very serious issues." And she was being asked mm-hmm. about uh, double digit unemployment, which the context there is that you know we're not going to figure out unemployment in the next thirty days. And now, should she have said an election is not a good time to talk about very serious issues? No, she shouldn't have. What is an election if not the the electorate deciding on very serious issues and who to who to um, the leader to weather you through the storm? But yeah, the context Mm -hmm. is completely missing. She's being asked about unemployment, which was ravaging the Western world at the time. Yeah, exactly. And and, you know, when she said, um, "We'll get." this the deficit and the debt and unemployment figured out by the end of this decade which is a very realist way of saying it and it's kind of actually what happened you know the liberals with their cuts and everything did kind of reverse a lot of that by the end of the decade but you don't want to say it during an election campaign you can say it once you're elected if you got a majority government say it all you want because at that point you've got the time but if you say that in an election that's what they're going to focus on. They're going to say, oh, she says that we can't solve this right now. It'll be years. So she's not going to try and solve it. And people will form their own uh, thoughts about it. Uh, the, the opposition will take it and run with it. And it, like I said, it's just a, a horrible thing to say during an election campaign. Nobody wants frank honesty during an election campaign. They want pie-in-the-sky promises of vote for me and next year nobody will be unemployed. It'll be a utopia. Everybody will be happy. That's what we want to hear. And you know what? We've actually seen that happen a couple times in this election, too, where things have just been taken a little bit out of context. And I mean, that's, I guess, the era of social media. But I do wonder, I know that we've, you know, 
you said we've seen improvements in the media coverage being less overt about who they who they slant towards. And I wonder if actually in a way that's kind of problematic that we can't see it as um, overtly who they're slanting towards because I mean, for example, like the CBC has an interest in keeping in a liberal party um, because, of course, mm-hmm. you know, Aaron O'Toole in his conservative leadership race ran on um, defund the CBC. And so it's difficult to imagine a world in which the CBC gives the conservative party a, a super fair shake, you know, because they have a they have an interest in, in keeping the status quo. So I'm curious, you know, how those subtle, how you think that those subtle um, personal <laughs> personal agendas <laughs> come in and maybe can actually be a little bit uh, dangerous to the general electorate who isn't necessarily aware of those nuances. Uh, absolutely. Like, y- you're right with uh, CBC because they're government-funded and conservatives have a history of not funding the CBC. I don't know what... It, the irony is that the CBC was created by a conservative. Uh, so it's strange to me why we keep trying to defund them. I, I don't know. But like you said, they want the liberals in parliament because the liberals support the CBC. And then other newspapers like Sun Media are very much, they want the conservatives. So they'll very much slant it. And you do see those subtle things. But I think the power they have is a lot less than they had even 30 years ago and especially 100 years ago where you're getting everything from the newspapers. I mean, speaking for myself, and I'm guessing it's the same for both of you, I actually get, I get my news from Twitter and, you know, from from those places. And it's very much out of the hands of the the media. Yes, they can share things, but they have no real control over whether or not that's going to be taken up by people and, and shared. 30 years ago, would we have had, you know, just say just not just true but say somebody says i don't answer questions from this news organization would that have been shared and would people have known about it as much 30 or 40 years ago versus now when we get a little sound bite and it's something a majority of canadians agree with because a lot of us don't like rebel news and then we share it everywhere and that's out of the hands of the the major media and i think a lot of people are more influenced by social media and the uh what they see there then versus what the national post or the globe and mail or toronto star say some people still do but i mean i i don't even buy newspapers anymore but i'll i'll read the articles but even if i go to an article it's interesting they're like oh well be a subscriber for a dollar a month i'm like no i just want to read this one article and i used to be in news i used to be in journalism like i get it but I, i don't want no, I just, I want this one article. And if you don't give it to me, I'll find it somewhere else. And I might find it from a news organization that slants a different way, but they give it to me for free. And then now that's kind of influencing me to their thoughts. Um, Craig, mm-hmm. I wanted to, to see if we could talk a little bit about, maybe kind of move it and put it in the context of this specific election and talk about snap elections. Of course, because this is a snap election. Um Parties who have called snap elections in the past, how have they fared? I mean, it, or have they been punished by the electorate? Do Canadians typically care? What do we think about, um, you know, if history is a teacher, how is is Justin Trudeau going to be rewarded for for calling this snap election? I think this election is kind of rare because it was a minority government calling a snap election. And usually a minority government doesn't get a choice. It, it's an election is called because there's no confidence vote. Sometimes it can be orchestrated. Uh, like in the 1974, when Pierre Trudeau had a minority government and he put forward a budget that he was pretty sure was going to fail, but he was riding high in popularity. So he wanted to get that snap election. So it was this genius move of getting the budget to fail, calling the election, and then the whole campaign is, hey, everything we want to do is in the budget that these guys voted against. So if you vote for us, we can do what we wanted to do with that budget. So really smart move. And then you get some majority government from that. So it really worked out for him. Um, I guess anytime you see a snap election, you're probably seeing it as a majority government calling a snap election uh, because they'll usually do it before their five years is up. If a majority government goes the five years, they are not going to be elected because they are waiting out the clock. They're trying to keep it going as and you saw it with Mulroney, you saw it with Trudeau in 1979 and both times they lost because they they want to push this off as far as possible. But you see it uh 
Jean Chrétien called a snap election in 1997, only four years after he got a big majority, because it was the right time. Got another majority, called another election in 2000. It's three years. And again, was was elected. So I think any time where you have a snap election and it's a majority government, they tend to do better because they are they're, they're paying attention to everything. They're riding high in the polls. They have control over when that election is going to be. It doesn't mean it always works out. Uh, a good example is John Diefenbaker had the largest majority in Canadian history, and he called a snap election for 1962, so four years into his five-year mandate, and he won but he won a minority government and then the next year lost and brought in uh, Lester B. Pearson. And I guess it's kind of the same thing happened with Pierre Trudeau with, he won in 1968 and then he called an election in 1972. So four years and he still won, but he won by like barely two seats was the, was the difference. Like incredibly close. Uh, but when you have a snap election, I think it does favor the party that's in power just because they control it. And because it's usually majority government, if there's a vote of no confidence, it can go either way. Uh, 1979 to 1980, you have a vote of no confidence. Joe Clark falls. Pierre Trudeau comes back into power. In the 2000s, you have uh, a vote of no confidence and Paul Martin loses. And then Stephen Harper comes into power and then he loses a vote of no confidence. And then that brings in another election, which he does win. So with that, it can be very much up in the air. And it depends on on the people how many elections have they had in a short period of time? I think after a while, people start to get kind of annoyed uh, having too many elections. And in 1980, that's what the conservatives counted on. They they put in a budget. They didn't get any support from the other parties. They had a minority government. Their budget failed. Election was called, but they truly believed that people would punish the other parties for calling for causing this election. And they were dead wrong. And they lost the election. Uh, the Liberals got another majority for another four years. So like, just to answer your question, I think it is very much up in the air, depending on minority or majority. Uh, if majority, chances are they're going to get reelected. Maybe a minority government, but they'll probably get reelected because they can see the winds of change. They can see you know, how things are going. And with a minority government, I don't think it happens very often where there's a snap election. And maybe that won't happen again because this has not really paid off too well for Justin Trudeau. Uh, he's definitely having trouble with this uh and he went into it riding high and i think he's doing better now i think he started to slope back up and i still think he's going to win i think it'll be a minority government but i i, I don't think he would get a majority government after calling a snap election as a minority government that'd be just unless there was a major scandal or something you know they did another face ad like they did in the 1990s which really turns people against the conservatives i, I don't see uh, us getting into a majority People seem to be upset. The vibe is nobody really wants this election, I feel like. And it's turned out to be one of the most expensive elections, which um, seems crazy that they wouldn't have, like, mitigated that in some way because people are already upset that it's happening. And now we're spending all this money on elections, and especially when it's a snap election and there's no real need, shall we say, for this election to be happening. It does make a lot of sense that people are upset. So we'll see if your prediction uh, comes to fruition. I'm I'm curious <laughs> myself. So um, in terms of, you know, a pandemic election, there's obviously been a number of big events in, in throughout history that we see highlighted in your podcast. Do you think that there, can you think of another election that might have, might be a model or something that we can look to that to say, okay, maybe history will repeat itself based on this instance. When I went into this, I thought there might be, especially with the world. That's wars. what I was looking for um, when I was listening to your show. Yeah. And I thought the same, like 1917, uh, 1940 and 1945. But I think the difference there is with the exception of 1917, because there was a very much a division between Quebec and the rest of Canada over the war, in those cases, everybody was like, yeah, we're on board. Let's, you know, fight this. Let's fight the war. Let's win the war. So they very much band behind the government that's in power because they want that stability. They don't want a government changing midway through fighting Hitler. They, they want things to be stable. And we didn't have an election 
during the Spanish flu. We had one in 1920, and that did see the liberals come in. But that was at the tail end of the Spanish flu. You know, they they weren't dealing with a fourth wave, for example. Whereas now we can't even agree on whether to wear masks. And I, I think we're in a very, we're not in that united front where we would, we want to, yes, we have to deal with this and we're all banding together and we band together behind the government. We're very much more divided in this case than at other times and where there was some kind of cataclysm that was dominating the news, dominating everybody's thoughts. And the only thing I can think of, like I said, was the world wars that would be uh, comparable. Like Korea, I wouldn't say is comparable. And we didn't really even have an election. Then we had in 1949 and 1953. Uh, there's no other time where, I guess if you look at like if, uh, the Great Depression, maybe uh, would be a, probably the only really close example. And you definitely saw a change because 1930, the liberals aren't really responding to the Great Depression. So the conservatives come in and say, vote for us and we'll, we're going to end unemployment. Like we're going to fix all of this. And then 1935, things are worse than they were in 1930, which brings in 22 years of liberals. That's the only time I can see kind of a comparison. But I think even now, this seems as divided as it was in 1917, where people are, I mean, people are throwing rocks at the prime minister, which is... Uh, mind-boggling like you do have it where in the 19th century people throwing rocks and and eggs like they kept old eggs to make sure they went bad and then they threw them at a politician when he was speaking like that you're thinking ahead there <laughs> but <laughs> i just Credit think this election due. is very unique <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly this election is very unique in that we haven't gone through something like this uh and even back in 1917 and 1940s, not everybody could vote. So there were still segments of the population that couldn't vote, whereas now everybody can vote and everybody has an opinion and everybody shares their opinion on social media. And you have so many parties, whereas back then you had two, three parties that really had a realistic chance of forming some sort of government. And only two of those would form a government, one or the other. And now we still only have the two that'll form a government, but we have like five or six parties and some are very extreme and are polling better than like the Green Party. And it's just very divided. And I don't think we've had an election like this. So it's hard to make that comparison. But if I had to, probably the Great Depression and how things shifted because people felt there were broken promises. And so they shifted to one and then that one didn't fall through. So they shifted to another. And then by the time the next election came, it was World War II. So everyone's like, well, let's just keep going with the with the guy we have rather than changing things up here and uh, mixing things up when we're trying to deal with a, a real threat in Europe. 2021 is the conservative leader Aaron O'Toole's first federal contest. You know, based on history, what do you think the conservatives will have to do to pull out a win here? And are they doing it so far? I think they're doing a pretty good job. I think they really shifted their tactics after the Willy Wonka uh, video. <laughs> like, that was the day one of the election. <laughs> oh, yeah. And people were like, this is... No, like it, a lot of people said it was the worst since the face ad because it was bad. It was like, this is, we're not going to It had the production like quality this. of the face ad in yeah. 2021 as well. <laughs> Gotta say. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was horrible on so many fronts. And then they shifted away and you don't really, you see the usual attack ads and stuff like that. And things like, you know, all Justin Trudeau wants is a majority. And like I said on Twitter, well, that's what every politician wants in an election. Like that's, that's stupid. Every politician, whenever they call election, because they want a majority, nobody wants a minority government. It sucks. Um, <laughs> but I think he, he's doing better now. I think he's trying to be more moderate and not be as extreme, Not maybe not even attack Justin Trudeau as much. Uh, still does a bit, but not quite as much. Um, but then looking at history and new conservative leaders, they tend to be in power for a while before they get elected. Uh, Sir Robert Borden didn't get elected for 11 years as prime minister. He was the leader for 11 years, but you know it took a while. Close example may be R.B. Bennett, uh, because he was only in power for three years as leader before he became prime minister. Uh, actually, no, good examples, just uh, John Diefenbaker. He was a year. But that came at the end of 22 years of liberals. And the previous conservative leader really laid the groundwork for the conservatives winning. So that's not even a great example. So if O'Toole doesn't win, he won't be leader anymore. 
because they never seem to give a leader a chance. They never seem to be like, okay, you lost. Let's concentrate on the next election and we'll figure it out at that point. Uh, they'd be like, no, you lost. So you're, you're out. We want a new guy in who's going to win. The liberals, at least in the past, take a different stance where, okay, you lost. You're going to be leader for a little while now. You didn't see it in the 2000s. They went through several leaders then. But you did see it, you know, John Turner lost in 1984, the worst defeat uh, until 2015 for the Liberals. But he stayed on as leader until 1990. So they they didn't just kick him out and say, we got to get somebody new in. And I think that's what the Conservatives will do, even if it's a minority government. And if he gets elected prime minister, he's got a lot of work to do to keep all of those different parts of his party together and, and agreeing on things. I think it's a, a good point that you make about keeping leaders in for several several years before an election happens or after an election happens because I just think that Canadians aren't as engaged and we don't maybe that's maybe that's unfair but I just don't think we have the same kind of like celebrity around politicians we're not Mm -hmm. as invested and it does take each politician several years before every Canadian really knows who they are. And I think that we've seen that this year in the polls, how, um, you know, Jugmeat has, um, Jugmeat has, has risen because he's someone people know about now and they feel a little bit more comfortable with him. Um, they see his TikToks. Yeah. They see his TikToks, which <laughs> we can talk about yeah, whether or not I... they're good, but people see them. <laughs> um, yeah. That's, the name recognition is vital. I mean, that worked very well for Trudeau in yeah. 2015. The last name's Trudeau. Every Canadian knows who Trudeau is. They know who Pierre Trudeau is. There's that recognition. And I think you're right with, uh, especially with the Conservatives, they never have that name recognition. They usually bring in somebody very obscure who only a few people know about. And some people, they gets maybe gets elected, maybe he doesn't. But most people didn't know who Mulroney was in 1982. You know, most people didn't know who Stephen Harper was in, in 2000. Uh, they were completely unknowns. Versus, say, Lester B. Pearson, who is leader for five years through two losing elections. But they keep him on as leader because he's got that name recognition of, you know, the Nobel Peace Prize. And you want that. You want somebody that people go, oh, yeah, I recognize that name. And I think it, the other issue is we don't vote for, like, a, a president or a prime minister. We're not putting an X next to... Pierre Trudeau on a ballot. So having that big name at the head of your party helps to give the name recognition to the party, to the liberals or to the conservatives, because then when you go to the vote, you're voting for a liberal or conservative or NDP or green or whatever it might be. And so very much having that big name is is vital for, for being able to be elected. And I think O'Toole has a decent name. He is everywhere, but there's a lot of people who don't like him because of some of the things that he said or he's done on, especially online, uh, you know, things that we wouldn't even care about 20, 30 years ago uh, now get shared millions of times mm-hmm. in a few days. So after the election series for John to Justin, are you going to go back to opposition leaders who were never prime minister? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go back to uh, the opposition leaders who weren't prime minister. And then after that, I'll probably do uh I think probably Canadian governor generals mm-hmm. rather than all the governor generals because up until uh, Massey, I'd just be talking about British politics and British uh, people, and I don't really want to do that unless I focus just on their time when they were in Canada. Um, so I'm probably going to focus on the governor generals at that point. And then I've had other people suggest do uh, the premiers of each province. So that's like 10 plus of territories. So I've got hundreds of... <laughs> Hundreds of episodes to come, I guess, unless I decide to stop doing it. Although I do, of all the podcasts I do, From John to Justin is probably my favorite podcast uh, because it gets the best response and it, it just keeps evolving. Uh, and I, I really enjoy and it, uh, even now when I'm doing Also, there's like day. nothing comparable. Like I said at the beginning of this conversation, you know, like it's so difficult to find news sources and, and media. So I think that not only is it obviously very entertaining, but I can really see it being educational for, you know, ev- so many people who need this content, who mm-hmm. really like there's just a lack of knowledge about it. So I think that the work that you're doing is not only fun, but it's it's important, you know, to get the stories out there. Yeah. And it, you know, it can help in elections by learning from last, you know, past elections, how Canadians voted, how we tend to move in these 
patterns uh, when we're voting and the parties we vote for and how those patterns are, are changing. You know, the liberals dominated the 20th century. Are they going to dominate the 21st century? Uh, you know, how are people going to vote now compared to how they voted 100 years ago uh, and how things have changed? And maybe if people also learn how things have changed, they'll want to be more engaged in elections and and voting and, and getting their voice uh, heard because I, we haven't had an election with over 70% voter turnout since 1988. So we definitely need people to go out and vote. And if people can listen to the podcast and go, okay, I'm interested in this and I want to have a say in something and it gets them out to vote, then, you know, all the better. I think that's a really great message to to leave the podcast on. (laughs) Go out and vote on September 20th. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Craig, where can people find you and your many shows? Uh, Well, they can find From John to Justin on all podcast platforms. It comes out every Friday. Uh, Canadian History X, which kind of hodgepodge of small town histories and anything that kind of interests me that's every wednesday and saturday uh canada's great war which i stopped doing just until i'm done with these elections because i I could do all of them but i just found that getting the great war one out was just too difficult with all these other ones that i had to do so that one will be coming back on sundays once the election is over and then i have coast to coast which is actually nearing its end uh and it looks at the building of the transcontinental railway and that's every thursday and they're all on all podcast platforms and then every single podcast episode i put out the entire transcript is on my website of canadaehx.com and i think i've got about 550 posts there now so there's plenty of canadian history to find on my website if you want to keep up with us in between episodes, you can follow us at Just Watch Me Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Send us your thoughts and feelings about the show at JustWatchMePodcast at gmail.com. And it really helps us if you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Thanks. See you next week. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.